a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm excited about this next segment as I am each week. I get to chat with a friend of mine, not only a friend of mine, but someone with a razor sharp mind who is looking critically at the situation in which you and I find ourselves battling the coronavirus. Dr. Stephen Mobley, MobleyMD.com, joins me on the line now. Uh, doctor, let's get right into it. Yesterday, some news broke that uh, stunned me. Now, I'm no doctor, I'm no smart guy, but I realized that something odd uh, was being presented in the news when I learned yesterday that President Trump, and this isn't like second, third hand, he said this in a press briefing that he, for at least the last week and a half, has been taking this hydroxychloroquine. How does that strike you? Well, I th- I, one of the uh, most common expressions I've been saying as a surgeon for the last two months is, well, we just don't know. <laughs> so a lot of questions you can ask, and we just don't know. It's a new virus, and so no one really knows if that's appropriate or not. What I think we can say is let's say that uh, you or I or President Trump was going to be uh, for some reason, in a part of the world where malaria is fairly common. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at uh, common health guidelines, you look at, for example, the Mayo Clinic's guidelines, they would tell us to take uh, hydroxychloroquine for one to two weeks before we depart, for the entire time we're in a malaria part of the world, and probably to continue to take it four to six weeks after. Now, does that mean hydroxychloroquine is going to you know, prevent President Trump from getting coronavirus? Who knows? But I think we're losing a little bit of uh, perspective that many doctors across the country out of the Mayo Clinic prescribe this medication routinely for malaria prophylaxis. It's not some super dangerous drug when properly administered by a doctor who knows your health history and laboratory values for your heart and potassium and those types of things. So this may be a nothing story. I may be just out of ignorance responding like, oh, my gosh, he's taken hydroxychloroquine. What, what, what does he know that we don't know? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it might not do anything, and I'm sure he's getting great health care. When you do take this medication, and lots of people are on it, people who are listening right now may have lupus or other sort of rheumatological conditions, may be taking this routinely, also thinking like, hey, what's the big deal? You do have to have some uh, special EKG testing to make sure EKG doesn't have any abnormalities. You have to check your electrolytes. That's sort of your potassium, your magnesium, the normal things you could test at a routine blood test. But if you check those things, and you're properly getting health care and monitoring, your chances of getting into serious trouble on this medication is probably still quite low. It's, it's a commonly used medication. Who knows if it's going to you know, reduce the chance of getting coronavirus, but how many people every year probably bug their doctor for an antibiotic prescription when really it's just a virus that's going to run its course? So the, the, the history of taking medications we don't need to make us feel a little safer, I don't think that's necessarily breaking news in health care. A lot of us do that. All right. Well, I'll, I'll calm down. I will cease my search 
research to pick up some hydroxychloroquine on the black market to protect myself and my family. <laughs> I'll just I'll move on. Nothing to see here. Uh, listen, you uh, let's change topics here for a second. You have some interesting data about screening for the coronavirus, specifically uh, verbal screening versus uh, the blood test. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, this is fascinating. This, this is out of one of our two major hospital systems. I get a lot of their emails, and, and uh, of course, for for Lee Lonsberry and your amazing viewers, I'm just going to give you the good stuff. That's but a uh, really fascinating uh, data coming out of here. So, so I like to I, I round my numbers a little bit just to make it easier to follow on radio. But essentially, imagine that they have been screening people for surgery verbally, right? Hey, mm-hmm. do you have fever? Do you have cough? You've been have you met, been in contact with anyone with coronavirus? And they verbally screened about three thousand people. That's a lot just by doing a good medical, you know, talking to people. Then they went ahead and and tested the people who, after verbal screening, had no risk factors. They found that maybe five or six out of 3,000 still tested positive for COVID-19. Now, doing math again over airwaves is tricky, but that's a 0.2% chance of being positive after good verbal screening, which just reminds us kind of what we talked about last week on the program. The overwhelming majority of people who have COVID know the person that gave it to them, right? It's not usually a mystery. It's not like you touch the oranges at the grocery store and now you have it. That would be very uncommon. Most people who have it know who gave it to them. It's usually someone in their own house. And so, again, just by talking to people and asking them the basic questions about fever, sore throat, and cough, if you ask the right questions and then you still test those people, you're only going to find uh, you know, 0.2% of them actually positive for corona. So, you know, just a good old medical history can go a long way versus a laboratory test. Absolutely fascinating. But doesn't the doesn't the laboratory test give us peace of mind? Layman like me, we like science applied uh, instead of uh, a questionnaire. How do we get over that hump? Yeah, I think it does. And then and then you get in some real technical issues because tests are not perfect. That's always been true in healthcare. But with a newer disease, uh, the FDA has approved more testing modalities more quickly without going through rigorous screening. And so every test, that whether it comes back, yes, you have it, or no, you don't, there's a percent possibility that that answer is still incorrect. So the, the, the worst and highest I've seen is if you get the state test, the nasal swab, maybe it has as high as a 30% false negative rate, meaning you were told you were negative, but you still had the virus. So as we started the conversation today, there's just a lot of we don't know. There's a, there's a lot of variables here we still don't know. But a good, careful history plus screening, your chances of having it after that drop tremendously, probably way below 1%. All right. That's fascinating stuff. Uh, Lastly, I want to talk to you about caring for the elderly, those with comorbidities, those who are immunocompromised, and strategy and tactics. For so long, the guidance being handed down to us is we all should be limiting our movements. We know that the masks, or at least uh, it's popular understanding, that the masks are to uh, safeguard others and that much of what we do is less to protect ourselves but uh, more so to make sure that we are not vectors ourselves, uh, infecting uh, others. As we go forward, in terms of limiting our own movements, should it be uh, those healthy folks limiting their movements, or should we soon be moving into a circumstance where those in the higher-risk categories are the ones uh, looking to protect themselves? Yeah, I think that's something that uh, I'd like to see that more of the topic of some of these public health conferences, be they the local ones or the national ones, because I don't think we've really 
totally tackled that, and that's the next wave of this. Let's let's take a best case scenario because if we go worst case scenario, we can depress ourselves. Sure. Let's say best case scenario that the, that the virus continues to kind of burn out through the warmer summer months. It doesn't change the fact that for the healthy Lee Lonsberries out there, the chances virus would take your life are probably exceedingly small. But for your grandparents, if they had some medical conditions, it's still a real risk. I mean, it may be as high as 10, 12 percent in certain age groups. So what are we going to do with these people? And particularly, what do we do when we live in a multi-generational home that sometimes correlates a little bit uh, with people of a little bit less financial means to have multi-generational homes? But how are we going to put kids back in school when the healthy 10-year-old can go back to fifth grade, but the healthy 10-year-old comes back to home with a 85-year-old grandparent with emphysema? And so I think that that's, you know, uh, the next frontier is assuming we don't have a vaccine or a known treatment, what do we do with those that are older that might carry that 10 to 15 percent risk of death from this virus? We still haven't figured that out, but we're going to have to find a way to shelter those people in place. And it could be a very long road for those that fall into the high risk categories. Mm. Let me ask you something about herd immunity. Can you just, like I'm a five-year-old, explain again herd immunity? Yeah, there's so herd immunity just means that's that's why you know of course you get into the whole vaccine debates and everything. Right. But basically, if if X amount number of percentage of people are vaccinated against the measles, your chance of getting it are smaller because no one around you can get it and pass it to you. So that's that's herd immunity. Now people could say that, that could require up to 80 percent of people, you know, sort of being immune to a condition. In Sweden, they're saying it could be as low as like 20 or 30 percent with COVID. But it's basically just the more just particularly pretend you're standing in a in a bath basketball stadium with 99 other people, if X number of them have antibodies to a disease, then you get to share their immunity because the chance of them passing to decreases. The question with coronavirus is we don't know what that X number is. Is it 20 people out of 100? Is it 80? Is it 50? Once again, we don't really know, but that's the concept of herd immunity. You, you can benefit from the immunity of others that you surround yourself with. Outstanding. Dr. Stephen Mobley, MobleyMD.com. Uh, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. It's always a privilege to get your insights and your expertise. Uh, well, let me ask you, before you go, have you been keeping an eye on, the, on all the various data shared by the coronavirus.utah.gov website? I noticed that they have added, uh, even on top of the information that you and I were begging for for so long, they have added now uh, community breakdowns. We can see now block by block almost how, uh, how this is how this is spreading throughout our communities. Exactly, I've been enjoying that. I, I call it the Lee Lonsberry State uh, Coronavirus <laughs> website now because of uh, all the new data that you have uh, helped encourage and your listeners can benefit from. But yeah, it's really neat how you can dial now down into your county. You can get more specific data, and all those things can reassure us. You know, I think as we hit the warmer months of Utah, we should probably you know safely social distance outside and particularly dial into our exact county to know what our risk would be. Outstanding. Uh, Dr. Mobley, thanks again for your time. Look forward to speaking to you again. Lee, always a pleasure. You uh, have a great rest of the day and stay healthy. All righty, will do. Uh, in just a moment, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about, uh, well, we're going to be picking up a conversation which started yesterday. And it has to do with the way the coronavirus is impacting the Navajo Nation. The, the, the nation there right now is experiencing a rate of spread and a positive rate that is greater even than New York City. You heard Dr. Mobley talking about multi-generational homes and low-income people. Well, that 
is kind of the norm on the Navajo Nation. There are many families that live uh, two, three, four generations together. And when the 10-year-old picks up the coronavirus and brings it home, everyone's got it. It's a scary time in the Navajo Nation, and there are a number of individuals who are uh, going through great lengths to help combat the spread of this coronavirus in a region where running water is hard to come by, people are spread out in great distances, and accessing health care is difficult. We're going to dive into that ahead on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio.